Master Sergeant John Chapman was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor, America's highest award for saving the lives of 23 men on the Tekorgar Mountain in Afghanistan in 2002. Chapman and the rest of a Joint Special Operations Reconnaissance Team were riding in an MH-47 helicopter. Just before insertion on the mountain, a rocket-propelled grenade hit the helicopter. The impact knocked Navy Petty Officer First Class Neil Roberts out of the helicopter. He fell into thigh-deep snow on the enemy-infested mountaintop. The severely damaged helicopter was unable to retrieve Roberts and performed a controlled crash landing a few miles away. The team immediately planned a daring rescue attempt, which meant going right back into heavy enemy fire. Riding in a second MH-47, the team returned to the site where Roberts was, offloaded, and immediately engaged the enemy. Surrounded in nearly all directions, with enemy fighters closing in, Sergeant Chapman charged up the snow-covered hill toward a fortified enemy bunker, killing two enemies from about 10 feet away, saving the lives of his team. Despite being wounded during the fight, Chapman took control of the bunker and set up communications to ensure close air support was available for his team. With more enemy fighters firing heavily, the team moved toward a safer location, inadvertently leaving both Roberts and Chapman behind. Almost immediately, the team came under fire from another fortified enemy position only 12 meters away. It was then that Sergeant Chapman deliberately moved into the open to engage the new enemy position. And as he heroically defended his teammates, he was shot and critically injured. After relentlessly engaging multiple enemy fighters for more than an hour, Sergeant Chapman ultimately succumbed to his wounds. By definition, the Medal of Honor is awarded for the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty. Sergeant Chapman did exactly that. His acts of valor and selflessness saved the lives of his teammates. It's important you know at least that condensed part of the story because I sat down with author and former combat controller Dan Schilling, who's done this stuff for 30 years and was involved in the infamous Black Hawk Down. We discussed the story of John Chapman and why he's on a mission to help everyone understand just how important combat controllers are to the Air Force. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Trevin Cannon, and thanks for tuning in to this very special episode of the Air Force Podcast. Uh, combat controller, among other things, is your area of expertise, and you've been involved in that for 30-some-odd years. Yeah. Uh, special tactics officer as well. What was it that drew you to that particular line of work, uh, besides obviously being some sort of adrenaline junkie? Well, I prefer the term adrenaline enthusiast. Okay. I think that's more <laughs> my essence than, than junkie. But anyway, uh, to answer your question, I was in the Army first. I was a paratrooper, grunt, and you no know, infantryman. Humped a 60 and a rucksack, and and I went TDY with a couple of combat controllers. This is a very cool story, and I I was exposed to this world I never knew existed, and that's the problem with combat control, and that's why this book needs to be in front of the American public. But one of the things that this guy Pete Neal, he's dead now, um, tragically, but we were talking about all the things they do, Halo and Scuba, and he said, and we get pro pay, and I said, pro pay, what's that? And I'm just a, I'm a corporal in the army. He's like, that's cool guy pay. I went, I'm in, man, I want cool guy pay. Mostly I wanted the halo, scuba dive, and I think that's what attracts most people, men and women now, because it's open, uh, to this kind of job is the, the desire to push yourself and the opportunity to do it in an environment where 
hey, 95% of the population can't even qualify. And then 94% of the people who try out, at least that's John Chapman's experience and mine with my pipeline, are not gonna make it through there. You're a fraction of a fraction of a percent in capability. And that's a metric that's appealing to certain types of people. I just, I'm challenge. one of those guys. Yeah, and it's like the ultimate challenge because then what you're doing is you're prepping for the ultimate battle. There's a Cormac McCarthy quote from a book called Blood Meridian. And the line says, there's two individuals talking, and the one says, well, why ask men about war? You may as well ask them about stone because before man was, war waited, the ultimate trade awaiting the ultimate practitioner. And so war is a really ugly thing. And before you've ever experienced it, it tends to have an allure. And you want to go prove yourself in this ultimate battlefield where it's no holds barred. Also, you founded and then served as the first commander of two special operations squadrons. Yeah. One of which is name and purpose remains classified. Yeah, so let's Please not talk, talk about, about that. only one of them. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about that. We'll not talk about that one. But um, and that was a great honor of mine. But I actually helped create and stand up and then become the first commander of a special tactics squadron. It's the 125th Special Tactics Squadron. It's in Oregon, so it's an Air National Guard squadron. And we pitched this to, I'm an entrepreneur by nature, and you don't get to be an entrepreneur in the military very much. In special ops, there's a bit more room for that. And I saw where this need was, and along with a bunch of other people, great people, and we pitched this to the Air Force and the Air National Guard and got them behind us and created that squadron. And I was a squadron commander as a captain, <laughs> and it's a fantastic unit. We're producing you know, 12 outstanding of the Air Force guys, uh, Silver Star recipients from the war. I mean, the, the, the unit went straight into operations before we were fully in existence. We were at Hurricane Katrina rescuing Americans. And it was a great thing for me to be part of that uh, squadron. And uh, in fact, I'm going to go there and speak while I'm on book tour here, uh, I think in like two months. Also, you were involved in Black Hawk Down um, or Operation Gothic Serpent. Yep. And you saved a Ranger and a SEAL Team 6 SEAL. Did not know that. A lot of people were doing things like that that day. I, I was not particularly heroic, I don't feel. And uh, I made some mistakes in combat. Um, you know, it's one of the biggest gunfights we've had in this country for in half a century. It, it stands today. I get asked about this all the time. My response is usually, you know, there's a lot of big gunfights that have taken place that were seminal since that time, and we should talk about those too. In fact, that's the book I've written. But yeah, I was a combat controller there. Uh, I was assigned to Delta at the time, and uh, then when we actually deployed, uh, I was attached to the Rangers, and it's just part of the operation, just doing my job. Well, so this ties back to you, you said entrepreneurs. The job wasn't always so glamorous and sought after, CCT. No. Um, and came from fairly humble beginnings. Why did the military need someone with FAA certification, scuba, snowmobile training, demolitions? These are like 11 training courses in schools over the course of two years. This is not easy stuff. No. So they're like battlefield choreographers. How did this, how, where did they come from? So com the genesis of combat control is the haphazard and only quasi-successful airborne operations of the Second World War. And that came with the Pathfinders that are more famous. When the Air Force became a separate service with the National Security Act of 1947, 
the Air Force realized if we want to control how our drops go, we really need to have complete control because when the Army was running this for us and we were the Army Air Corps, they, sorry, they were screwing it up. And there's a quote in my book where I'm talking about the pilots over uh, Operation, I think it was Torch, and it's the Sicily Airborne Invasion. And the pilots said, you know, the safest place tonight in the air was over the enemy territory. And so the Air Force realized we needed to control this. In 1953, they formed the first combat control team. And uh, the term actually comes from one of the last airborne operations in the Second World War where they actually had combat control teams, and they stuck with that. So what's interesting, most people don't know, is combat control is this most versatile and deadliest special operations force on the planet, predates SEALs and Green Berets. I mean, didn't they you know, start training in like the back of a hangar somewhere? They're like, yeah, you can have this base to do this. It's been that way forever. It's, it's so good it's not that way now. When I, my first assignment as a combat controller in the 80s at Herbert Field, we were in mobile home trailers. We had three, I think. And we had plywood on the floor because there were places you couldn't walk. I mean, that was the squadron, man. That was the 1723rd Combat Control Squadron. To see what combat controllers and all of special tactics has now, and these four AFSCs that are very powerful, TACP, pararescue, special reconnaissance, which used to be Special Operations Weather Team, to see what they have available to them to be the deadliest and most versatile force in the, in the world in special ops does my heart good because we didn't have that. I'm not saying it's one of those, it was tougher when I was a kid kind of thing, whatever. It's that it sucked then and it doesn't now. And the Air Force has made these great strides in advancing what they have to do to have these preeminent people. They certainly get a lot of the cool toys now. They need them. When I told Lori I was in, and my responsibility was to write, her job was to write about John Young and, and growing up and, you know, and as he enters the Air Force. And, and, and to really talk about her personal experience when <clears throat> we went to the White House and, and you, she, this medal and his legacy is now established as it should have been. And my job was to write all the rest of the stuff. Combat control, John's time in combat control, time in the Air Force, all that stuff. So I went straight to the Air Force and said, hey, listen, I'm not Dano from combat control that a lot of people know me inside AFSOC and even, you know, JSOC or wherever. I'm just a writer. I wanted to start from scratch. How do I go about you know, doing this thing? I mean, I'd done my research, so I got permission from the Air Force to conduct research, interview people. I had access to pretty much everything. Um, I couldn't take classified things, but I, you know, right. I, I, because I am who I am, I'm not a journalist. One, I'm trusted, part of the family, and two, I'm not gonna walk off with stuff and do things that sh I shouldn't or write things that shouldn't be in the book. So I just started to do this and to piece this together. And I didn't know the whole story. In fact, I learned so much during the course of this thing. And that's, that's, so that's how I did it. And I just, like any other writer, I just had to start collecting information. Uh, what not to put in became much more difficult than what to put in because the book needed to be very powerful and elicit an emotional response from readers because that's my mission. Well, actually, my mission is to change the American public's view of the entire U.S. Air Force with a book. That's my mission. But what, so there was so many great stories to put in. The first draft that was a polished draft was 140,000 words. The book you have in your hand is 100,000. I cut 40% of the book out because it couldn't be that big. 
too many heroic stories. Bob Gutierrez, one of my favorite other combat control stories and favorite combat controllers. He's such a humble guy and such a hero. I, I couldn't put a story in there because it, it's going to slow the reader down. And so that became more difficult. The most difficult thing for me about the whole book was writing John's death. I spent a week writing that and it was soul crushing and I live at 9,000 feet on a mountain and I would just go out and rage at this mountain. Uh, I, I mean, I would just lose my mind. And because we'll get to this in a minute because I'd like to talk about John, but it, just what he did on the mountain and how it happened and how it happened to him was a very, a a story of, I got you, a lot of anger. Sometimes. It's a story that you have to tell right. So I can see. And it has to be right. I'm resp I feel responsible for the entire combat control community. Because I'm the guy, I'm, I don't have, um, I don't have the right to do what I've done, but I felt I had the obligation. No, no one directed me to write this book, but I was obligated to do that, and I carried an entire community on my back, and I still am today. This interview, if I screw it up, they'll kick my ass. Did some part of you decide to write this story because you identified with John in some way? Did you see yourself in him? I think John's a better person than I am. Uh, he was sympathetic and empathetic f from the earliest age. One of the great anecdotes in the story comes from his sister, uh, Lori, my co-author, and she talks about first day of kindergarten. She's five, and it's the first day of kindergarten for everybody. And there's this other kid who's his first day in town. He's a brand new kid, and this girl is bullying this boy. And John Chapman, five years old, day one in kindergarten, is like, nah, it's not happening. And he did this throughout his life. Um, but where there are, what I see common traits, what John did on the mountain, not to equate myself to his heroism. I don't know that I, I could do what he did. Maybe, maybe not. Combat's a very personal experience. You can really only speak for yourself. But John did what he had to do. The decision he ultimately made the second time he really sacrificed himself for a group of people in the same morning, he... I can't say what he thought, but I, I can definitely say what he decided. And I've got all the footage and I spent months and months on this one short period of time. And I know more about that time than anybody on planet Earth. I don't care who you are or even who was there, I know more than anybody. The only other guy who knows about as much as I do is a, a Lieutenant Colonel down at AFSOC who spent two years of his life researching this for the Air Force to justify it. Anyway. That's a sort of a long answer to your question, but I, I, I see myself and John in the sense that we were both combat controllers, and most combat controllers I know are, are capable of amazing feats, including more guys you read about in the book on Anaconda. What impressed you the most about John Chapman? His humanity, without a doubt. He's in, he had never had any combat before he went on this deployment. He deployed in late January of 2002, and six weeks later he was dead. And the gunfight he was in, this epic gunfight, was the first and last gunfight of his life. But what is cool about John is, there's this iconic picture of John. You should almost have it as a backdrop here. Instead, you know, as Valerie over there is holding a picture of John. I think that's great. And John Levito, one of our other enlisted Medal of Honor recipients, which is great. And I was connected to both of those people because I, I knew John Levito and I knew John was he's in this Afghan village with the seals that he's attached to. And there's a snowstorm and they 
basically barge into a home and they're like, hey, we're taking control of your house. And what I usually do when I'm in audiences, I will look around where I see mothers and I'll say, okay, let me put this, paint this picture for you. You're an American housewife and you're in your home hanging out with your family and a bunch of bearded Afghan guys come in with weapons and they smell bad and they tell you, we're here to occupy your house for the next two days. There's nothing you can do about that. Uh, and they're all armed and you're not. How likely are you to put your two-year-old daughter in the lap of one of those guys? The answer is you're not gonna do that. This is what happened to John. John's in this house and he radiated this kindness and love that people responded to. And this mother put her baby in his lap and one of the seals snapped a picture of, of John holding this baby. And you can see his eyes. He's got these really kind eyes. And it's the iconic picture of his life. It juxtaposes this warrior, one of the deadliest fighters in the history of human warfare with this human. And he was very devoted to his wife and daughters. And uh, it's amazing. He'd had a daughter by that point. He had two. He had two. Yeah. And so he'd changed and you can, you can sort of see the arc of two. I, don't even, I wouldn't even call it an arc because Valerie, who I greatly admire, is a dear friend of mine too. In the, I've met her a couple times before, but in the course of writing this book, she and I spent a lot of time together because I interviewed her a lot about their love affair. And she says it, it's like almost binary. There was John, the badass, and the great husband and adventure partner. And then they had um, Madison, first daughter. And she said, changed. Overnight, John was like, this is my purpose in life. And then they had two. And it's like, okay, I'll still be a kind of controller. And he was actually approaching retirement. He was, they were planning for retirement. What are we going to do next? But his life changed. It was not some arc. It was an overnight thing. You'd rather just be at home brushing the girl's hair than at the shooting range. Man, it's, it's who he was. And, uh, and for me, and this gets into the movie, um, which is well on its way, you know, the screenplay is written by now a dear friend of mine named Michael Gunn. He's a brilliant screenwriter, so I hate him a lot because he writes better than I do. And, uh, but it's, the movie's a love story, man. It's, it's not Black Hawk Down, which I have experience with movies. I've talked with Jerry Bruckheimer and I'm you know, consulting, whatever. It's a love story. It's a love story between John and Val, and it's a love story between John and the brotherhood of American fighting men and women because that's ultimately the altar on which he sacrificed his life was the brotherhood of war. And that's the ultimate statement of love. It's as if the actions that were, or the things that happened to him all led up to that moment. They um, did. It's, it was almost scripted for Hollywood. John had movie star hair. That picture of by, behind there, when you look at that picture, he's about to get on a plane. I think he's in Peru doing a halo jump in some Peruvian aircraft. And his hair is like straight out of central casting, man. It's now he's going to look better on the screen than he ever did. And, and I've told Valerie, I'm like, you're going to be so amazingly hot. And she's a beautiful lady anyway, but I'm like, you're going to be so hot on screen. Like you're going to dig it. Have they talked about who might, uh, they have. What's interesting is, uh, I am sworn to secrecy. I'm actually okay. an executive producer on the movie, which I'm honored to be. Who would but, you like to see playing? I'm not going to venture any guests because okay. that's, uh, that's, that's called, that's called baiting. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding, man. No, nah, they've got, it's going to be a big budget film. Uh, you know, they hired a, a brilliant screenwriter, 
the production company that optioned the rights um, are so passionate about this movie. That's why I sold the rights to them. And there's already a studio on board. You know, it's forty or fifty million dollar film. Well, it happened pretty quickly, as I understand it. <sighs> Typically, not your uh, green lighting process. That Never the average screenplay will take to kind of bounce around to fifty different studios. So the screenplay was written. The screenplay was finished before the book was released two weeks ago. Never happens in Hollywood. And this is just the synergy and the momentum that has been this book project and this story. It's not the book project. It's the book and the movie. And, uh, you know, the great thing about the movie, for me, as an author, is it's going to help me sell more books. This book that we're talking about is a 20-year book. Black Hawk Down is a 20-year book. People still buy that book. People ask me about that battle every day. Well, it's the first thing you think, oh, you're when Black Hawk Down. Tell me about that. You don't ask me about any other operations I was on. And this is a 20-year book. I want airmen to read this book 20 years from now and go, that's what I want to do, or that's the Air Force I'm in. The problem with the Air Force, and you can quote me on this, and I hope this is in the interview, is it doesn't take credit or promote its heroism in the way the other services do. It's not to denigrate or diminish or cast aspersions at the Army or the Navy who have rightfully earned so many accolades. The problem is the Air Force is, in fact, the most powerful force on the planet. You know why? If you're in that uniform right now, you're responsible for two-thirds of the U.S. nuclear triad. That's the most powerful force and biggest responsibility on the planet. But we don't act like it. But below that, in special operations, the deadliest individuals to walk a battlefield in the history of human warfare are combat controllers. They're not SEALs, they're not Green Berets. People can take umbrage with that. I don't care. It's not to take away from them. It's the fact that if you're a Green Beret and we're in a gunfight, you're killing it's a kinetic connection between you and them, and it's two-dimensional for you in a gunfight. They, they talk three-dimensionals, but that's not how they function in the battlefield. Near, far, left, right, and I'm going to reach out from me to you and connect to you, connectively, and shoot you with a bullet. There's more going on inside of a CCT head versus how you have to keep that that's almost right. four-dimensional mindset during a battle when... Well, or and it's not... It's not not Almost like a four dimension. And it's in fact, that's what differentiates a combat controller. This is what makes them the deadliest individual on the battlefield. The training pipeline for a combat controller is longer, as challenging physically as becoming a SEAL or a Green Beret, but more intellectually challenging, complex, and expensive than any other special operations training pipeline ever anywhere in the world. Because you also have to be an Air, air Force air traffic controller. Now, I'm also an FAA air traffic controller as a combat controller because they sent me to a tower. Now, we do that, but the bottom line is they think in four dimensions. They think near, far, left, right, up, down, and time. And that's why they, as an orchestra conductor, wield this symphony of death with their baton, which is their radio, to call in airstrikes. Their ability to do that with precision, unlike anybody else, I mean, you're talking, I know guys who have stacked planes from 10,000 feet to 35,000 feet, and they're calling them in like an airport. You have to understand all the call signs. You have to know all the call signs, several dozen. When you might be awake for more than 48 hours. Just like everybody else. Just like your other, the rest of your teammates. SEALs, Australian SAS, you name it. And you have to know the capabilities and limitations of all the aircraft in the air, which is U.S. and allied. How to employ those planes and the several hundred types of ordnance, what they do. And if you do it wrong, you're going to be left holding the bag as an individual. If you kill all the bad guys and your team all survives, everyone's like, yay, we did it together. 
But if you, the lowest ranking guy, which is what you almost always are because the Air Force does not promote fast, <clears throat> and probably even the youngest guy, you carry the disproportionate burden of everyone's life. And if you screw it up, everybody dies. Man, that's, the burden is so heavy. And you also, by the way, SEALs and Green Berets are badasses. No to hands, absolutely. Combat controllers carry more weight when they're on a patrol with a SEAL than any SEAL. You ask anybody this question, and everyone's gonna tell you, yeah, it's true, because they have to carry all the radios. And they, if you're like, oh, help me carry my stuff, you look weak. You can't do that. And so combat controllers just do this, and they tend to be really quiet guys. My mission is now to get them out on the public side. Who is this book for? The book for it is for all Americans. But I wrote for me. Lori wrote for, for her brother. It's very obvious and very clear. I wrote the book for combat controllers and Valerie and Madison and Brianna Chapman. That's who I wrote the book for. Um, but it's to reach Americans. Because the other thing that they need to know, in addition to them being the deadliest individuals on a battlefield, is when the world experiences a global catastrophe, I mean a nation collapses in its entirety. Haiti in 2010, so my favorite examples because I put it in the book and the epilogue. The first of the first responders are or can be, they're not always, combat controllers and because they can go there unsupported. And they can set up an airfield in 28 minutes? And so we that? advertise, it's, a, it's this combat control standard. We'll get your airport up and running, your airfield that we seize or steal from anybody, and 30 minutes or your next pizza is free. You know, it's, one of, it's, sort of a, it's sort of a catchphrase. And Tony Travis, who was a master sergeant in the United States Air Force, led the American and then international relief effort when the nation of Haiti collapsed. And he landed in Haiti with seven other combat controllers, two four-wheeler ATVs, and a folding card table. And when he stepped off that plane as the first guy on the ground, he hit his stopwatch. And 28 minutes later, with two minutes to spare, they had cleared, established, built the procedures, established communication, and were ready to receive aircraft from around the world. And what's so amazing about this is two other things. They exceeded that runway and airfield's maximum capacity by 1,400%. 1,400 percent, 1,000 plus percent more than you can fit on that airfield without a single incident. This is a master sergeant in the Air Force. There are no officers. This is, this is the essence of combat control. And what's really fascinating is he had a letter from the president of Haiti giving him sovereignty of all Haitian airspace to an Air Force master sergeant. It's like saying in America, the FAA goes, hey, Sergeant Cannon, here's a letter giving you sovereignty of the entire American airspace. Go forth and do something good. The burden of responsibility for that is immense. But what Tony said, and this is the thing I, I greatly admire about him, he's a really humble guy. He's got a lot of combat experience. He said, that mission meant so much to me because in combat, you don't know if what you've done solved a problem or did good, you don't get immediate feedback. It's hard to tell if what you, killing people is a negative and it's a terrible thing and you don't wanna kill people. I, one of my regrets in life is that I had to kill people. I'm sorry that I had to. And, and so he was talking about this, but he said, in this operation, combat control brings order from chaos. 
And to do that in a positive way to help people was personally very powerful for him. And I believe he feels it's the greatest thing he accomplished in his career. Well, a lot of times they'll, there's only one usually with the crew and it would seem as though it'd be better to have an extra gun on hand, but all the other teams are amenable to having a CCT along because they know their value. They know their value because when everything goes to hell, this is the guy who's going to bail you out. If you're overwhelmed by enemy, outnumbered, outgunned, which has happened in, the, in America's longest running war, the stat I like to throw people is combat controllers are 0.1%, 0.1% of the Air Force. In America's longest running war in its history, they are over half of the Air Force's Silver Stars two-thirds of its Air Force crosses, and its only Medal of Honor. It will not be its only Medal of Honor, in my opinion. There are other Medals of Honor that are already out there. In, in my expert opinion, as a guy who spent three years on a book effort researching this stuff, and I've become well-versed in the Medal of Honor, not through its whole history, but what qualifies and what doesn't. In my opinion, there are three other Medals of Honor in the United States Air Force today, and maybe We'll get there. The Air Force does a great job of trying to, you know, do the right thing. I'm not casting aspersions at the Air Force at all. But part of what I am trying to rectify with this book, as I go back to my mission, change the American public's view of the entire U.S. Air Force with a book, is that the Air Force should not wait 40 years to recognize Pitsenbarger for this war. So without naming names, I just, in my research, there are three combat controllers that have earned the Medal of Honor, in addition to John Chapman. And I, I hope that we get there. And I know the Air Force is looking at these things. It's something that they're starting to do. I just want to be a catalyst to help the Air Force get where it should go so that Americans know the Air Force has the biggest badasses in the world and is responsible for the most powerful, res or responsible for the biggest, you know, deadliest force in the world that humanity has ever created. Two-thirds of the U.S. nuclear triad. Can you talk a little bit about the first combat controllers in Afghanistan? That is such a great question, and I'm happy to talk about that. A story that's in the book that, and I like to share is, the first Special Forces A-teams to go across the border on the very first night of America's response to 9-11, there were two of them, uh, ODA-595 and ODA-555, five, 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 sorry. And one had a combat controller and one did not. And when they got across the border and started operations, it became very evident that their ability to wield firepower, American air power, and allied air power was very divergent. So not talking about the other ODA who were brave Americans, special forces heroes, but it was an absolute night and day difference. So the first combat controller that went across the border for America was a guy named Calvin Markham. He's a dear friend of mine. He's a great American hero. And they are now lined up with the Northern Alliance, which is a great word because it's sort of a haphazard collective of people with varying objectives. But that's who they're fighting with, and that's a Special Forces mission. But they've got Calvin with them. So they're fighting across Afghanistan. They have taken Bagram Airfield, and Calvin now, in November of 2001, is very early in the war. It's anarchy over there, and it's real warfare, they find themselves on the outskirts of Kabul, and the Northern Alliance wants to take the capital. 
And Calvin and his special forces team were told, do not go to the Capitol. But the Northern Alliance is going there. That's where you go. And so they are, this battle emerges and it's like a World War II battle. You have to remember at this time, the Taliban controlled the country. They controlled the military. There was a real army. There was an air force. And they have Soviet tanks and armored personnel carriers and they have thousands of troops. And the Northern Alliance is lined up on one side and the Taliban have lined up on the other. And they're having a battle. And Calvin Markham is in this second story of this building and he's calling in airstrikes. And he'd been calling in airstrikes for hours. And this battle is waging and the Taliban's decisive numerical advantage is proving decisive as well. And the, and the Northern Alliance is losing this battle. And there's hand-to-hand -hand fighting taking place at the base of the building that Calvin is in with a handful of Special Forces soldiers. And he realizes, I gotta take a game-changing gamble. So he calls in a B-52 airstrike. This B-52 is, is loaded with 27 2,000-pound bombs, 54,000 pounds of bombs. And he's gonna call in this airstrike 500 meters from his position just past the friendly lines, on the enemy lines, and he's using antiquated Soviet maps. We didn't have any maps of Afghanistan at the time. And if he does anything wrong, he's going to vaporize himself, his team, and the Northern Alliance by his own hand, that disproportionate burden. So he calls in this airstrike, and for comparison, back home, if we were at Nellis Air Force Base calling this in on a range, your safety standoff distance for this type of strike is five miles. And Calvin actually looked at his teammates, and there's this dramatic, almost Hollywood pause, and he says, are we going to do this? Are you guys good with me doing this? And they're like, yeah. <clears throat> so he calls in the airstrike, and the pilot's doing his calculations, at 30,000 feet in a B-52. He's like, confirm that you want this drop right here. And Calvin, it's a quote in the book, he says, I told him if we didn't, we were gonna be dead anyway. So, and he actually sent him around once because he had to recheck, he wanted to recheck everything. And this airstrike, when it came in, and you have to remember, these are dumb bombs, no JDAMs, no precision guidance from 30,000 feet it's subject to atmospheric disruption, winds, and antiquated Soviet map. But the airstrike was perfect because of his ability to understand, which is the, the maturity to even send the plane around again. And he destroyed several thousand enemy men, 400 some odd tanks, armored vehicles in a morning, and it was his 26th day of combat. And 25,000 feet per second, the detonation of 54,000 pounds of ordnance delivered by the mightiest air force in the world ever of any air forces destroyed the entire Taliban force that was engaging in the battle. And the second wave that was lined up to come in fled and retreated to the south. And at 8 o'clock in the morning on November 13, 2001, Calvin Markham and ODA 555 rolled into Kabul, in a scene reminiscent of a Second World War liberation of a French town, and what the Pentagon planners, the people of this building with all their brain power, believed would take six months of planning, took a month, 
and a Special Forces ODA team armed with a combat controller and several other teams were out there. And they went from 50, owning 15% of the country to 50% of the country in a month. That's the power of combat control. All in a day's work. For Calvin Markham, it was his 26th day of work and it wasn't his last. He's a, he's a stellar combat controller. Another great example of, of what the Air Force and combat control can produce is a man who is another, such a humble guy. He's a lot like John Chapman that way. Or Gabe Brown, one of the other heroes of the Mountain Taker Gar, where John Chapman was. His first day of combat, like John Chapman's, rose to the occasion. Airstrikes, I think, 75 feet from his position using F-16s. And at the time, early in the war, like F-16s were not the most current guys for delivering precision bombs to troops in contact. They're brilliant at it now. But this is early in the war. And these are typical guys who in combat control who make all the difference in the world and save lives by the score we well, said they didn't have the greatest equipment at the time that would run out of batteries the cold weather it was hard and they weren't mostly it weighed a lot man like you're talking you're talking guys were carrying 115 pound rucks okay that's just the rucksack that doesn't include your ammo your weapon all the other stuff you got to carry that everybody else carries 115 pounds I, it's astounding. And then they're humping up these mountains at 10,000 feet in Afghanistan in the winter. Jay Hill, another one of my favorite combat controllers, another really humble guy. And he's right out of central casting. He's got surfer hair. You know, it's just like this dude. But he's this humble family guy. And, you know, he snuck behind enemy lines with Delta Force during Operation Anaconda at the same time. In fact, he is the witness, one of the witnesses for John Chapman. He heard John, who was a teammate of his and a good friend of his, calling on the radio after the SEALs had left him for dead. So that's another one of the reasons, many reasons we know John was alive, because Jay kept hearing him. But, man, you know, he's got this right. He had more weight than anybody else. The Delta Force guys who were great heroes. He's carrying all this weight as they're humping up these mountains more than anybody else. And he would never tell you that. I had to drag, you know, he dragged that stuff out of these guys. And that's my job as a writer. Tell me what really happened. Well, you know, everybody had a lot of weight, but yeah, I had more weight than the other guys. That means a lot if you're behind enemy lines, subject to death at any moment. That makes a difference at 10,000 feet, man. This is what you have to do. It's what you have to do, but only if you can. This is why our training is longer and as hard as any other special operations force. Because you have to do everything that they do tactically. Jump, dive, shoot a gun. But you have this other responsibility and you're going to carry this weight. That's a long answer to your question about who are the first combat controllers in Afghanistan. Most Medal of Honor recipients rely on eyewitnesses, descriptions. But this particular Medal of Honor was recorded via ISR footage. You took that footage and explained what was happening in detail. Talk a little bit about that. Happy to. Uh, in fact, all medals of honor require a witness or in the history so far. They have all had out of the 3,000 plus medals of honor. And this required one too, and it has one. What Debbie James, then Secretary of the Air Force, a lady I greatly admire, said was, you know, when she, she initiated this reinvestigation, she's responsible for the kickstarting of this thing and leading it uh, and pushing it across the goal line in many ways, was, well, we've got this witness and we do. But so people sometimes say, well, it's just this electronic witness. How good is that? Well, it wasn't that it was an electronic witness. It wasn't the computer that witnessed it. It was the pilot flying 
Wildfire 55, who's an Air Force member, by the way, flying this for the CIA, who I met a couple weeks ago. And the AC-130 gunship crew overhead, they're seeing it. It just happens to be through the lens. And so that was the witness in one way. I mean, another witness is Jay Hill is talking to John Chapman. Now, John Chapman never responded to him, but it's another witness. But what I wanted to do with this video footage to help reach Americans, to show them what has happened, and in particular, not combat control, but just John, his heroism as an individual and his selflessness, was to take the gunship footage from an Air Force AC-130 gunship and this CIA Predator drone and reveal the story in a video. And so we worked very hard on this, hired a very talented video director. I wrote the scripts and did the voice narration. And it covers John's journey and ultimate sacrifice of his life on this mountain. And um, if you, it's a YouTube video, it's on YouTube. If you, you know, just Google in YouTube or, you know, Google first Medal of Honor, it'll populate because while I wanted it to have an impact on people, I was not prepared for the overwhelming global response to this. In the first week, it had a million views. And the very next day, it had another million views. And the third day after that, it had another million views. It's got, I stopped tracking a few days ago, I've been on book tour, over 3 million views in a week. And we were getting, I don't read the comments, but my assistant does. And she says, you're getting, Denmark, for some reason, was a lot of people. But I'm getting responses in Korean and acrylic, people from the Middle East, uh, which surprised me. This has touched them. It's a very emotional video because you see this man making this decision to climb out of a bunker, mortally wounded. He's in the process of dying to save 18 men he didn't know. And, you know, even when he saves all the lives or the lives of all of the SEAL teammates he had, uh, it's remarkable, but it's an emotional video, and I encourage people, I encourage every airman to take a look. I really appreciate the Air Force, how they've gotten behind me when I started this effort. And I said, this is some, I want to do this with this book. You know, this is my responsibility. If it goes sideways, no one's going to hold Lori responsible for, you know, she's, she's here to talk about John. Everything else that is either... Uh, a deliberate statement or possibly controversial or subject to debate is my responsibility. And the Air Force has been behind us, but me in particular, I feel, because I, th I, think, they, I think the Air Force is ready to come out into the light in a way that we never have. As a, it's like a, a little brother or sister syndrome that we've experienced because we've only been around since 1947. And it's time for us to move into the light on, and gain parity with the Army and Navy, and both in heroism and in capability in the American public's eye. And I, I don't think I can thank the Air Force enough for doing that. As always, thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Force Podcast. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Trevin Cannon. Hit subscribe and keep an eye out for more episodes coming soon.